Jacob Deverakusen is the director of building science and sustainability for New Frameworks, a worker cooperative owned builder in Vermont focused on social equity and ecologically minded building practices. Jacob is also an embodied carbon analyst and a beam trainer and developer for the organization Builders for Climate Action. This guy is a real inspiration, as you'll see, and just an all around kind soul. We talk the primary culprits of embodied carbon, the beam estimating tool, and how his company has built a co-op owned by its employees. Here's Jacob. Before we begin, I would be remiss without a quick thanks to three very important Building Optimal partners. First, to Lowe's and their MVPs Pro Rewards and Partnership Program, of which my own company is a very proud member with exclusive benefits and offers like e-gift cards and in-store freebies. Lowe's is a true partner, enabling contractors like you and me to succeed. Second, to Ram Windows made right here in the Lone Star State. I use Ram Windows on every home and I love everything about the windows they make and what that company stands for. And last, but certainly not least, to Subzero Wolf Cove, the premier appliance company in the world, which we use exclusively in our homes. We are thankful for the support of these wonderful companies, which help make this podcast a reality. So Jacob, first of all, really excited to have you on the show. We had a great intro call a few weeks ago, and I've been really excited to get this out to our audience because you've got some great messages that you're already sharing with the world that you're already actively involved in leading. And we'll get to those in a second, specifically Builders for Climate Action and your BEAM tool. But let's talk for a second just about you. Tell us what you do in your day-to-day. Right on. Thanks. It's a real honor to be here. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, yeah, to connect and share the good word. Yeah. So my daily depends on the day. I wear a number of different hats within new frameworks and the director of building science and sustainability. So pretty much anything involving building science or sustainability, I've got my fingers in those pots. I operate mostly out of our design team. A lot of that work is doing either active mechanical design or mechanical engineering coordination for all the designs that come out of our shop. They do a lot of enclosure design, enclosure review, energy modeling, and carbon modeling, which we'll talk a fair amount about as a pretty steady part. And so that's for all the work I'm doing within for the projects that are coming from new frameworks. That's to do a fair amount of consulting for other primary archi- primarily architectural firms, but also builders as well, looking to improve their practices or, or have the modeling or redlining done on their projects. And then I'm doing a quite a lot of, pardon me. So outreach and networking and presentations like this, reaching outside of organizations to make connections, say, with the agricultural community or with the forestry community, do a fair amount of work around policy and code stuff, talk with other folks that are in this field, sharing notes and developing ideas. So that takes up a fair amount of work. And then a lot of work with climate action in particular around, specifically around the development of the BEAM tool, training for the BEAM tool, and talking about why it's important. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. Builders for Climate Action. Who are you guys and what are you doing? 
That's great. So we're a small crew based, home-based out of Peterborough, Ontario, but with folks in a few different places around, mostly in Canada, I think of one American. And they, they're doing a few different sort of sort of folk focuses of work all around embodied carbon and particularly material carbon emissions. So we developed the Beam tool and we'll get into some more detail around. It's a tool for being able to model the material carbon emissions of a product project and also look and compare between different assemblies or even different products. So that's a chunk of the work. We also do quite a fair amount of research using Beam, but really working for municipalities, for builders, developers to look at the emissions impact of buildings and what the pathways and opportunities are for emission reduction. And so for municipalities, a number of municipal studies, and I highly recommend check out buildersforclimateaction.org. And there's a bunch of white papers that we've released around some of those studies, working with different municipalities to look at what's the baseline emission profile of the housing stock or a few different housing profiles. What's the range of emissions from the, so the best to worst that are out there right now? And then what are, again, what are the opportunities to be able to draw those numbers down? Yeah. Let's talk about the beam tool, but first I got a question about something you just mentioned. Yeah. So you said most of the team at Builders for Climate Action is in Canada and you're the mm -hmm. lone American. Yeah, yeah. Is there a difference in the perception of sustainability and the way that builders are operating in Canada versus the way that we're operating here in the U.S.? That's a great idea. A great question. Yeah, I will be honest. My perspective is still super American biased. Even though I spend a fair amount of time hanging out with the Canadian crew, I'm not sure I could reflect their position super well. I guess what I've seen is in general, this is just from my own perspective. I see when I look at like the, if you could call, look at the entire body of American builders as a corpus, which I know there's a ton of diversity within, that zooming way out, I see the Canadian building industry having a significantly like more internalized understanding of energy performance than I see in the US. And I think that's probably some combination of climate and programming. I, that was like a, maybe an overall assessment, but I think we're all kind of babes in the woods around wrapping our heads around uh, certainly the material climate emissions. And then sustainability in general, the same pressures around first costs and affordability are underpin the industry writ large. And that tends to very frequently come as a sort of a zero-sum game when comparing against sustainability measures. And it's always seen as somewhat tension or opposition or compromise as opposed to finding where you can achieve both of those at the same time. And I see that kind of universally around North America. Sure, sure. Okay, switching gears to the Beam tool, which yeah. is an amazing thing that you guys have created. And I learned about it via talk, a webinar <coughs> that you gave a few months ago yep. at the end of last year. And it was something that completely was like, a, it was an eye-opener for awesome. me. I had just really started studying the impact of embodied carbon in yeah. our projects. And it was like a really amazing tool to come across. I wish that I'd found it a few years ago. I'm not sure exactly when y'all created it. I was say it would have been out there for years ago. Yeah, I wish I would have found it whenever you guys created it. Because <laughs> yeah. it's something that we all need. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that tool and <laughs> what it's helping builders and designers accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So the Beam tool 
is really looking at the, as a way of quantifying and evaluating and comparing the emissions of the carbon emissions of materials. And so formally, that's what we call cradle to gate. So that's from mining raw materials out of the earth to the point that it's developed into a product that would leave the factory gate, if you will. And we can get into more detail about why that boundary and the specifics around that, but essentially we're going to being able to compare the emissions of different products and to the point of being able to do a pretty decent model over an entire building, missing some pieces, there's mechanical equipment and some plumbing fixtures and whatnot are not in there, but to get a really good comprehensive view of what the total emissions are of a building prior to that building even being occupied. So what we've been learning about embodied carbon in general, the climate emissions of buildings in general, is that for a long time, as we've been really focusing on the operational emissions and the emissions that come from the energy that's used to heat and cool and ventilate and light our structures, that's been the real focus for a really long time. What we've all been learning about pretty rapidly in the last decade is the emissions that are released in the production of our buildings and what it takes to get them into existence is enormous and is also the they are the first emissions that are released and so they're in the atmosphere the longest doing the most damage the longest period of time and they're also the biggest pool of emissions to address within the short period of time we have to reduce our climate impact and to hit some of the goals we have around emission reduction so if we're building a building that's going to last for 80 years reducing incremental annual energy use is critical and important. But if we're doing that and not thinking at all about this huge plume of emissions that's coming right at the beginning of a building's lifespan and its creation, then we're missing this huge opportunity we have to reduce emissions and this critical pool of emissions that we really need to address to, to hit our climate goals. So the tool is designed to make it as easy and facile as possible for particularly for smaller firms with lower soft cost allowances working on or on smaller projects to be able to have a good tool set. There's there some really good tools out there that are molded towards projects that have a full design process and they're design tools and they plug into 3D modeling programs or that are really designed for like a commercial development process with a construction manager and some of the project management, like infrastructure and, and details that come along with that, which are awesome. And we need those and they're critical as well, but there wasn't much out there for a smaller firm building, say a residential house that wanted to be able to get into a tool in a couple of hours and really map out what's going on, or even dip in there for 30 minutes and evaluate a couple of materials really directly and quickly. And so that was the niche that we were looking to fill and the basis of the tool was designed to do. One of the things that for me has been a real profound epiphany over the course of my education, which is still in process here. Problems, um, really. <laughs> yeah. I focused for so long on the operational emissions. Yeah. I have to imagine that's what a lot of the general public has done as well. And that this embodied carbon has not really gotten a fair shake in the past. <clears throat> And that has really been something that has started catching up recently. Do you feel like we're at a point now where it's now widely understood and acknowledged that the embodied carbon is just as important here as the operational emissions? No, but I think we're making a lot of gains there. I'm right there with you. I was a, my background is in energy performance, energy modeling, high performance enclosures, and really looking at the operational side. And I want to be super clear. I don't think this is an either or thing. I think it's very much a yes. And I would never suggest that 
we don't need to worry about the operational side of things. We just need to focus on the embodiment. The embodiment is more important. I would never say that. I would say we're, we've been doing a really good job. And I would say maybe that's even being a bit generous. I'd say those of us that have been working on energy efficiency have been doing a really good job of building up our body of knowledge and really good case studies and ways to do it really cost effectively and efficiently. And I think as an industry at large, I still don't think we've done a good job of improving the energy performance of our buildings. But those of us that care have done an amazing job. And I feel like we're standing, you and I working today are standing on the shoulders of incredible builders and designers from in the last generation that have made it easy for us to do better, better work. I think the, there's a larger sort of societal understanding around, ooh, there's a climate impact from all the stuff we consume. I feel like that on like a societal level is like starting to become more commonly understood. And I see articles out there about the carbon emissions of our coffee. And there's a lot of general understanding around this. I would say within the building industry, we're, I think we're in a process of connecting those dots right now. They're like, oh, how we build, or what we build with is also super important. And I think what's been difficult is to give that any real sense of like scale as well as, okay, so what's the actionable thing? Like when we're trying to improve the energy efficiency of a building, like we can add insulation and that's quantifiable and actionable. And there's direct strategies and there's design precedent for that. We're trying to improve the air efficiency. Like we can hook up a floor door now and get some actual numbers and have some actual targets. And I think that has gone a huge way of improving the air tightness of buildings. With building materials, it tends to be just like just far enough out of view and without enough really good. That's why I really psyched about having the beam tools. And we now have a mechanism of really being able to like understand the numbers and be like, oh, this is eight times greater impact. Or I'm using so much of this drywall that's actually having this much of a scale. There really is an incentive or a benefit, or I can see an opportunity of how I can dial that back down. Whereas before, it's just like, there are emissions that happen and we use stuff and where yeah. do you go from there? So I think we're, I think we're getting there. I feel very encouraged by the rate of speed at which the conversation is evolving and more tools are getting out there and I see more people talking about it. I've been researching on this and talking about it since 2016, 2017. And the fact that in like really like a five-year period, the seven-year period of time, it's now like in federal policy and showing up in like sessions and tracks and conferences and like, oh, okay, wow. All right. I feel very encouraged that it's a, it seems like a not linear, but exponential curve of knowledge and information sharing around the topic, which is awesome. That's yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in that webinar about something that I find really interesting and usually in complex matters that we are dealing with and our lives are on the planet. This is normally the case. You said that basically, look, there is no kind of one size fits all prescriptive cure for reducing your embodied carbon. So in other words, it's not like you can just go hand everyone who's building a home a list here this is xyz this is what you do and we're good it the beam calculator is really designed to help respond to the individuality of every project and every project will be different the optimal outcome and the right path forward is going to be different for every owner for every builder for every project that is my understanding that's what i heard you say i hope that's a correct 
analysis of that. But I thought that was really interesting that, that you have to understand that this is a very nuanced topic. It's not just a simple prescriptive cure. Yeah, I agree with what I what your interpretation of what I said. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That good, pretty good. Bang on. The thing I'll say that is maybe to build on that just a little bit, so it doesn't seem too like overwhelming or hyper custom, is that there are some very good patterns that have established around where a lot of the carbon is. Like I can say right now, particularly those of us that are in um, like residential scale construction. So I say low rise construction in general. A lot of that is wood framed. And so the framing is not the big problem. Not to say that there aren't emission issues with wood and we can't be over consuming it and there's better and worse sources, but compared to steel and concrete you get from like mid and high rise, like we're good on the structure. The concrete is a big source. And I would say accordingly too, the insulation is a pretty big source. If for no other reason, then we're building buildings with more insulation than we have in the past, which is a good thing, that's important. And there's a huge range of impact across different types of insulation. So there's a few categories, like I look at concrete and insulation as two, just like walking in the room places that like any builder could start looking at and very likely find really good places for improvement at very little to no cost with like kind of off the shelf proven like reliable solutions. And so it's nice. I think I've actually been encouraged by some of the studies we've done and a lot of the work that I've done both within new frameworks and also with, with various consulting clients is that, yeah, it's useful to have, okay, here's some places to just start. So you don't have to feel like you're taking on yet this whole other new process. I know that's a real barrier for folks that it's all they can do to get their projects done without being weeks behind and losing. And it's a really competitive market right now. The pandemic has not made anything easier. We're we're on the front lines in it on the construction side, and it's hard to add anything extra into any day. And so I would say the sort of the to get to the place where I think we need to be and to the potential we have for reducing our buildings carbon emissions and even turning our buildings into carbon sinks, that is nuanced and it's particular and it's specific. And there's, I think a lot, there is a lot there that needs to get evaluated that we all sort of need to learn in the bigger picture, but also need to look at it on a building by building basis. But for folks that are just starting to like recognize this as a thing, like how do I even start concrete and insulation? And like, yeah. you could just walk in the door there and then the path will continue on. Let's talk about that for a second concrete yeah. and insulation. Dan, who we interviewed on our last ap episode, is a fan of uh, helical piers. Do you oh, yeah. have any other solutions that you think, besides obviously using less concrete by smaller slabs, if you're going to be doing slabs, and yep. but alternative methods, anything else come to mind that you typically offer up when you're consulting for people? Yeah, great question. And that definitely falls in the category. I tend to, I have a pretty sort of structured way of like kind of looking at these things. And so the non-concrete solutions, I think are a great place to start. At first, like, do we need concrete in the first place? And then if we do, how much can we minimize it? And then if we need it in its form, how low strength can we design it? And then are there additional things we can add into it to reduce the use of Portland? Because it's really the Portland cement and the concrete that's the, like the big emitter. So there's like a series of different knobs and dials to turn. The ones you're talking about, like helical piers are going to some non- concrete-based solutions. I'm like, yep, because then you're not even using it in the first place. Helical piers are awesome. We work with them as well. Rubble trench foundations, and as a sort of specific approach within a larger category of shallow frost-protected foundations, 
are awesome. I'm revealing my Northern bias. So where we are, our frost line is five feet. So that's how far we need to go down to provide drainage or frost protection of some capacity. So we see a really large amount of concrete being used in cold climates because if for no other reason than for frost walls and really, and needing to, and we have a lot of basements because at that point you, it's arguably you may as well put in a full floor. So some of the like, shallow foundation solutions are particularly relevant for us. The other thing that I've seen that's been really, it's cool to actually see a developing body of details around this amongst the green building community are what I've seen commonly called slabless slabs or basically like floating plywood slabs. And so thinking a double layer of three quarter inch OSB or plywood that is on a bed of insulation and essentially replacing a four inch slab that you could then use as a nail base for your finished flooring or as a subfloor application. And then it's basically the concept of a floating slab within a, within a frost wall or a grade beam or what have you. But instead of having to pour, you're using layers of sheeting. Yeah. Okay, good. And onto the insulation, just again, keeping it very kind of high level elementary yep. here. So dense back cellulose over foam. What what other suggestions do you have there? Yeah, that's no, this is, you can get super into the weeds. I'll try to keep (laughs) it really high level. So just staying with foam for a second, it's really useful to identify that there is a huge range of impacts just within very comparable products in the world of foam. Again, knowing that there's a lot of folks that have been very efficiency minded and really trying to address the operational side that have developed some really good details and practices they utilize foam insulation, especially subgrade, especially because like I'm a retrofit contractor. And so trying to get away from spray foam for these rubble wall basements, oh God, it's really hard to solve that problem without that approach because it's such a built-in endemic moisture and thermal issue in the building in the first place. So I guess I'd answer that by starting to say, if we can at least get from HFC-based closed cell spray foam to HFO-based closed cell spray foam, and you're just changing the blowing agent, there's some minor technical details in the field, but even that move will cut the emissions of that down like significantly. Going from an XPS board insulation to an EPS, or especially the graphite impregnated EPS, I often hear them called GPS for the graphite part. That's going to dramatically slash the emissions, and you're still using foam board, and you don't have to change all your details, and that's still pretty basic there. I'm a huge fan of dense back cellulose. I think that's one of the best not even low carbon, but actually carbon storing solutions out there in the insulation world that are like already on the market, proven details. We verified it. It's ACM tested. Like it's multi, like it's fully market pre- tested and proven. We are producing one of amongst a number of different manufacturers now producing straw insulated panels. So it's basically like a bio sip, like a straw sip. And that would be like, another level past where you're now changing your framing style or your enclosure style, but there is no more effective way yet that I found to store carbon in a building than using ag residues and in particular like hemp and in particular straw. So there's, I'd say like a really good gradation from like really simple materials swapping within a class of materials you're already familiar with using all the way to, oh, and there's also market viable carbon storing Ag materials you could be using for insulation, and there's and a big range in between, including, for example, cellulose or hemp bats or cotton fiber bats, like the natural bio-based or ag fiber insulation bats as a replacement for fiberglass. Maybe a little more expensive. Maybe you need to find another distributor for that, but it's still bad insulation. It's still all dialed in the same way, and that might be something in between 
swapping out foam board A from foam board B or going all the way to a straw enclosure or a hempcrete enclosure. Okay. You mentioned with the dense back cellulose that it's actually carbon storing. And that mm. was going to be my next question. Yeah. So if we want to turn our homes into a carbon sink, what are the biggest levers that we can push on there? Again, just very high level. Yeah. So I'm going to say there's a bunch of amazing work being done. I'd say in the sort of the mineral category, looking at carbon sequestering cements, which is not as much my focus and I'm and a little bit further out of reach, I would say, for the average builder looking to start getting some new projects in their buildings next week. So I'm going to stay in the category of bio-based materials that I know are already out there in the world. And so the concept here is that when we're looking at what are the solutions out there, like big picture, all the different like carbon capture technologies, all the solutions that are out there to actually get, not just do less harm of putting less emissions into the atmosphere, but actually pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And we see plants is probably the most effective carbon scrubbing machine out there that we've seen. And so if we look at the process of photosynthesis that trees and straw and hemp plants and all, all these plants utilize to develop the body of their structure, pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, releasing oxygen, and then entraining that carbon in their stalks or in their trunks, as well as in a well-managed ecosystem, <clears throat> putting as much or even considerably more of that carbon into the soil. So this is where getting our products from well-managed ecosystems becomes really important because there's an amplifying effect of carbon drawdown that comes from really good forest ecologies and, and good soil in, in our agricultural enterprises. But if we're just looking at taking that, you mentioned cellulose, so let me actually continue that thread for you there. So that cellulose insulation working backwards from the point of installation Prior to that, it was paper, usually newspaper or paperback novels. And more increasingly, we're seeing cardboard entering in the feedstock for, for different cellulose products. So it's all, almost entirely post-recycled material, depending on the manufacturer, but you can get very high content, recycled content. So it's essentially being diverted from a waste stream that's already become a paper product that trees already been cut down. Going backwards, that was once a tree, and that tree was developed from photosynthesizing that carbon dioxide. So when we're taking cellulose and injecting into a wall, we're essentially upcycling recycled paper into a high value insulation product that's going to be stored and banked in the building for the entire lifespan of the building and keeping that carbon from decomposing, biodegrading and re-aerosolizing back into the atmosphere. Carbon goes in a cycle. Carbon's always moving in a cycle. So it's going from the atmosphere into a tree, and then that tree burns or decomposes either in the forest or at the after it's done being a house or in a house fire. Somewhere along the line, it's ultimately going to cycle back up into the atmosphere eventually. So when we talk about carbon storage in a building, I use the word storage specifically because it implies that it's temporal. It's only we're only keeping it for a period of time until the end of life of that building or that of that material comes. In the case of installation, it's a really good example where, well, that paper could be burned or could be decomposed and it could be aerosolized, or we can inject it into our walls and store it there safely while also improving the thermal performance of the building. And so from looking at the material emissions, we would count that as a negative emission. We're looking at the amount of carbon that is already in that material. It's already been pulled out of the atmosphere at the beginning of its life. And we are intentionally using that to, to bring into our material profile for a building that gets a credit as legitimately storing that carbon in that building. If we're looking at wood, like the studs, 
that that cellulose is being injected in between, that gets more complicated because there's a version of that stud where it stayed a tree photosynthesizing. We haven't helped the atmosphere by cutting it down. There's another version of it in which it would need to be cut down anyways, or maybe even the having a forest management plan for, for a forest is actually keeping it from development, for example. And so that gets more complicated in terms of do we give that storage credit or not? And has a lot more to do with what's going on in the forest. And that can be difficult to unpack when you're trying to buy your next lumber order. But cellulose as a recycled product, it's easy to see. Yep, it already exists. It's already there. The counterfactual scenario was not being a tree. It was going to a landfill or being burned. So great. Now we can, and similarly with straw and hemp and some of the, what we call short cycle crops, like they're only existing for a year. In the case of straw, it's being grown for food. Now there's a certain percentage of that straw that could be reincorporated into the soil. And there's a whole other conversation around ag practices. But similarly, the vast majority of that is just being used for mulch or otherwise getting decomposed within a year cycle. And we're trying to interrupt that cycle, grab that carbon, bank it in a building and use that as a storage mechanism. So that's the high level concept of why we would give a storage credit to a material. And really that source of that carbon being from the atmosphere when it was initially photosynthesized into a plant-based product. Awesome. Great explanation. Thank you for that. Yeah. Let's talk about you for a second and the stuff that you're working on right now. I'm interested, what are the things you're most passionate about right now and that gets you excited when you wake up every morning? Oh, I've got a bunch of them. <laughs> How much time I got? Let, lay them uh, on us. Let's see. All right. Let's say like the really big, there's three categories that I'm really pumped about. And they're all related to each other, unsurprisingly. So the piece I was just talking about around carbon storing building, like that, like figuring out how do we legitimately get zero carbon buildings or carbon storing buildings and using that process to develop greater relationships between the huge amount of financial consumption power we have as a building industry and leveraging that to improve sustainable forestry, sustainable agriculture, investing that in local and regional communities and having more community-based economies and supporting those land-based enterprises and all the manufacturing that goes in between there. It's so exciting to see how we as a building industry can be supporting regional manufacturing development and regional forestry and agricultural initiatives and all be doing that to get carbon storing building solutions. So that's a big thing that I that I had spent a lot of time on. Related to that is how that nests into this larger transition the industry is in towards a, a zero carbon economy. A lot of that looks at like electrification, building enclosure performance, which is directly associated or related to electrification and all the other steps in between there, like all the other electrical infrastructure needs to be upgraded. And we were talking earlier around the vulnerabilities and risks around resilience that, you know, and backup systems and backup plans that kind of associate with that and transportation and the relationship between buildings and transportation. And we may be actually looking at our electric vehicles being part of that resilience system for our buildings that are powered off of electricity. And that works because they're thermally efficient and that can be done using carbon storing materials. So looking at how all those things knit together in a pattern gets me really excited because we are in a transition right now, undeniably, like we're in it and we can either fight it kicking and screaming or we can pick it apart by little bits and pieces. I get excited about looking at how those things connect together and just how much opportunity there is. 
And then taking that, my third thing I get really excited about is really on the mechanical side. Again, I so my roots are as a energy designer and the mechanical side of things is a really big part of my, my project level focus when I'm working on a given project. So I'm super pumped this year to be working on really the whole mechanical, electrical, and plumbing side of embodied carbon. With an eye of getting that ultimately into the beam tool, it's going to take a minute before we get there. But that's a huge piece that's it's a huge piece that's missing from pretty much the vast majority of the embodied carbon analysis that I'm seeing right now. We just until very recently haven't had the good data. And I see these awesome links and being able to unpack that and relate it to now they're in all these heat pump systems. Ooh, that's a whole lot of refrigerant that we're throwing all over the place. And that refrigerant is really intense from a climate impact. So what I'd hate to see is we get on this like electrification train and start throwing heat pumps in all these buildings that aren't really well designed to receive them and cause a bunch of building science problems and also a bunch of refrigerant leakage, which wipes out all of the carbon emission reductions that we were trying to gain by electrifying in the first place. And so having the embodied carbon and the climate impact of that equipment be visible as part of it Having the, again, like that bigger picture of what our transition strategy looks like be well managed or at least understand what we're doing and have those pieces be identified. And then of course, the like the carbon storing part of the building materials gets me super jazzed. Their company, uh, New Frameworks, is doing these straw panels now. And so if that's become like this opportunity for us to really not just talk about it or look at opportunities, but to get straw on walls and figure out how to do that cost effectively and efficiently and in a really joyful way. Yeah, I'll come up for air for a second there, but those are, that's the constellation of what wakes me up in the morning. Where can we learn more about the straw panels? Oh, sure. Well, the panels that New Frameworks is producing were called Griffin Panels by New Frameworks. So if you go to newframeworks.com, you'll find us. I'll give a shout out to Croft, C-R-O-F-T, up in Maine. They're doing straw panels as well. EcoCocone is a company that's starting to sell in the United States as well. And so those would be three different manufacturers that are all here in the U.S. There's some others that are up and coming on the sort of the western half of the continent that we'll, we'll be seeing more of very shortly. And I to keep your eyes out for them as well. But the California Straw Bale Association is a great organization that really keeps the thumb on the pulse there. would be another good place to look for some upcoming work there. And in full disclosure, I know nothing about these systems. I'm going to learn <laughs> about them after we get <laughs> off the interview here. But are there any constraints or limitations or considerations that builders in different climate zones or regions should consider before implementing those systems? I would say always. That's because I'm a big champion of climate responsive construction. I would say there's no like inherent compromises. So we've been building with straw really only as a panelized product in the last oh seven years or so. My first project was for my own house back in 2002. So we've got like a really, and there's houses that predate us by a decade in the Northeast. So if we can have straw work well in the Northeast, like it can work well anywhere. It's really moisture tends to be the really big concern and has a very similar profile to wood as to its ability to hold and release water without decomposition. So if you can basically, my, the general rule is if you can keep wood inside your wall dry, you can keep the straw inside your wall dry, but there's a lot of detailing that needs to get worked out. And that's where the climate specific part comes in. If you're in a more moist environment in the Northeast, there's a series of details that are relevant. If you're in like the Southeast, you have moisture problems that are almost the inverse. When you're in an air conditioned environment, you've got a really high exterior humidity profile. And so just understanding how vapor, what your vapor drives are, I'd say for any high insulation wall assembly, it's just really important to know 
where's the vapor coming from and what's your drying pathway? Yeah, in the West, I'd say, yeah, I don't have to worry about that so much. It's pretty awesome. It's, but then you have to worry about fire. And so you've got a whole host of fire detailing that's every bit as relevant as moisture detailing here in the Northeast. Then again, it's just recognizing that unlike masonry construct, classic masonry construction, straw can ostensibly burn. And so you need to follow good detailing. I will say it's way less likely to burn than many other comparable installation forms because of its density, and particularly when it's in a good form of an airtight enclosure. There has been ASTM ratings for plastered straw bale assemblies that pass the two hour class A fire rating. So it's not an inherent vulnerability, more to the point of, yeah, wherever you happen to be, it's going to map in similarly as to a wood product as towards its vulnerabilities around moisture, around fire, so on and so forth. Okay, great. Anything else that comes to mind in terms of stuff that you're looking at these days? I guess the, the things that I get really encouraged about <clears throat> is the amount of movement, not just within this like technological realm of this material or that detail or this analysis tool. It's really exciting to talk about those things because they're very tangible and they're very direct. And I think we all tend to be some technical solution oriented in our trade. Like we were picking up tools and we're putting materials together all the time. It's really, we live in a realm of technology on the daily. And so I get super pumped about those things. I get equally, maybe even more excited about some of the improvements around social issues around this work as well. Like I'm seeing everything from barriers of access into the trades for folks that are normally like not welcome and comfortable in the trades to on the other side, to see these projects and these products be accessible to a wider like realm of, of folks and a greater access to more people that to me really start like that's where the really exciting work comes in we have these opportunities to not just address some like climate issues that have to do with the chemical balance of the atmosphere yes we do get to deal with that and that's awesome and important and critical but also the same some of the same problems or some of the same conditions that allowed for that problem allow for a whole lot of social inequity and exploitation across the area, within the industry, within people have access to our products, like the whole realm. And what we are really psyched about is, oh, we can actually address both of those with some of the same actions and some of the same moves. And people that live in better performing buildings that aren't as toxic are like way healthier and have lower costs of living and have like, there's these benefits that are like so critical for at-risk communities to have access to this type of housing. And then similarly, as we're developing new businesses and new technologies and new ways of building and designing, like not only do we have the opportunity to bring more people in, but like we literally need more people with more perspectives in the room to come up with these better ideas. Like they're not just coming from the people that have been doing the same thing for the last 30 years. Like these advances and these opportunities come from new vision and new energy from a broader group of people that get to participate in the process. So that part, I would say, is zooming out as wide as possible. It's like not just looking at this as a technological thing, but seeing how that technology that technology is created by and used by and serves people and how that becomes a really exciting part of the process, too. Are there any builders that come to mind who are actively addressing social inequity at a pretty high level? Yeah, I think 
not to be self-serving, but I'm going to use new frameworks as an example only because I know it the best. And so it's easy for me to give some examples that are referenceable. And I don't by any means mean say, we're the only ones. It's just like, <laughs> that's the easiest one for me to talk about quickly. Let's talk about um, Yeah. So there's kind of a few different levels where it's been super relevant for us. Our roots are as a creating a space where it's comfortable for queer folks, gender non-conforming people, people of color to be in the trades. And like specifically in the trades, I can say for myself being like a white man that I was intimidated to get into the trades. I was a total like liberal arts, like performing. I was like a musician background in high school. The band nerd trying to get into construction was like, whoa, there's a culture there that feels like pretty intimidating and not super welcoming. And that's me. That's as like a white guy feeling intimidated from our company's inception. We had a very strong focus on how do we make it like a positive, inclusive, healthy culture on the workplace. And what I can say is, yes, that's been very valuable for us in terms of like better retention, being able to bring a much wider hiring pool than most construction teams have access to. Like all those things are true and good. Also, it's a healthier culture. Like we are healthier people, no matter what your gender identity, no matter what your race, no matter what, like your orientation, like it is inherently a healthier, more respectful place to be. And I look at a lot of, when I go onto a job site, a conventional job site, it's like a pretty hostile, toxic environment a lot of the time. And like, why? Like, why are we, there's so much pride and craft and honor in being a builder and building things with your hands. Like, why do we have to subjugate ourselves in this like oppressive and exploitive culture for that. It, it replicate it. The value goes beyond just like trying to do the right thing or like having a good market angle and a better hiring pool. All of those are also real too. Another part of our company that is maybe more difficult for others to access, but we definitely are seeing a growing movement, which is cooperative ownership over the company. So we're a worker-owned cooperative and that doesn't inherently make for an equitable or accessible business, but it is a truly an inherently democratic structure of business ownership that and and a huge step in the right direction i would say yeah i would too as a co-op owner and as someone who works with other co-ops pretty regularly it's pretty amazing to see some of the folks that are on our sort of governing board that are like mid-level carpenters they're not necessarily having to it gives them access to some power and control for folks that otherwise wouldn't have access to that and we talk a lot about job creation, which is super relevant. Don't get me wrong. Yes, that's good. And we do not have to worry about job opportunities in the trades anytime soon. We have like plenty of hiring signs in the construction field right now. But what we see is a lot of those jobs are dangerous and really skill and labor intensive for not really great remuneration and have a pretty like low ceiling to what advancement looks like. And with a cooperative structure, there's an opportunity not just to have a job, but build a career and not just build a career, but actually have company ownership. And to provide that stake is like a whole nother, what that opens the door in terms of the culture and the the team orientation and the quality of work that comes from that and the quality of our own lives and job experiences that come from that is huge. And as someone that has been involved in the company since the beginning, that honestly, I did not get into this work to be a business owner. And I'm not a really good CEO. It's like not my skill set. To be able to have a structure that allows other people to show up and take up space and take up leadership space makes it way easier for me to do the thing that I'm the best at while still having the level of sort of ownership and stake in the business that 
that I want. And, and so that, I, yeah, there, there's that part to it too, zooming all the way out. So what's the nature of ownership of the business gets me super fired up. <laughs> that is something I want to touch on a second. If you're at liberty yeah. to share, sure. can you yeah. tell us a little bit about how many owners are there in the co-op? How does one be invited to become yeah. an owner in the co-op? Do you have to work at your company for a certain number of years? What any of the details that you can provide us, I think will be very enlightening for a lot of us. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'll start by saying there's lots of different co-ops and they work in lots of different ways. And I'd say they're as diverse as there are a number of different companies. So again, the new frameworks is we've got our own approach that models others that we've seen, but it's also certainly at the end of the day, unique to us. So in our structure, we don't have any employees. Everyone is an owner. That's not the case. I do. There are definitely co-ops out there that have an employee structure. You'd enter in as a hired employee and then they have their own pathway to ownership. For us, we have basically two tiers of ownership. There's a trial owner, which is a 1% share owner. And that's how you enter into the company. Generally speaking, if we were like, hey, we're hiring for a new builder or hiring for a new architectural designer, they would enter in as a 1% share owner of the company. And the hiring process looks very similar and is not, is not entirely dissimilar, except there's more conversation around what the sort of responsibilities and sort of the details are around being an owner as opposed to being an employee. And all of that sort of implies an attention of a longer relationship and a longer sort of 10-year relationship with the company. So that's part of the discussion as well. The there is a process. It's about a, it's a five-year period of time, a financial investment, and some basic training around and business ownership. And those are some of the requirements, as well as a expressed intention to want to be an owner that's validated over multiple periods of time when we have regular check-ins. So we have, like many companies, we have like routine reviews and performance reviews and the like, and that sort of nests in within that. And those are all parts of the process that that one would go through to then become a full member. There for a certain period of time, you are get some basic business training, you state your intention consistently, and then you buy in for a share of your ownership of the full company. And then the other question we get a lot of is, like, how is it different feeling what, like on the day-to-day -day, being in a co-op versus in a, in a regular business, like in a more of a classic employee owner structure? And in the field on the daily, I would say just by, just structurally, it's not super different. We still have a hierarchical structure of, of how power is distributed across the team. There's project managers and there's site supervisors and there's experienced carpenters and then apprentices and people like, are very clear who responds to who and who's responsible for taking charge. And we're not picking paint colors by committee. It's, it's like an efficient team needs to structure to conduct work. Same thing in the design team. There's an architect, there's architectural designers, we have roles there's a hierarchy to that and by design and by intention. The governance of the company, how we make policy, some of the like the larger hiring and firing policies, the time policies, a bunch of like how we choose to govern ourselves and set up our conditions for work, as well as the oversight and review of the management of the company, that's conducted by a board. And that board is elected by the full members. And that's where the like egalitarian cooperative structure really shows up, that there's actually a check on, and, and it's not just a check, it, but it's accountability and oversight and support for management. I want to say and support, because I see a lot of businesses that are 
struggling under an overwhelmed and undersupported owner. And so there's like that kind of go, it goes both ways, both support and accountability between the board and company management, as well as like, how do we want to decide we're going to govern ourselves and what policies make the most sense and support of our needs together? I would say culturally, again, getting back to that just for a really hot second, there's a really big difference when I'll use the example as, a, again, I do a lot of the retrofit work within our company, sort of part of the work that I started. And uh, when someone's up in an attic doing an air sealing job that like literally no one is ever going to see that you're really relying on the person in a hundred degree attic on their belly with roofing nails sticking out above their head, trying to fit out some air sealing detailing that's like really important. There's a difference between someone who's just can't wait till five o'clock so they can clock out and get the hell out of there. And it's just their day job from someone that literally has an ownership stake in the success and viability of that company. And that's, that is an example of where like our own individual identities and what we bring to the work has like a direct impact on the quality of the work, as well as just the quality of our lives and our experiences. When we're all doing better, we all do better. So that cultural piece shows up as well when folks really feel like they got a stake in the game. They really have and room to grow and a direction which they could continue to grow and evolve into if they see fit. Yeah. There are ways for people to increase their ownership in the co-op as they progress in years or seniority, or is it like you said, you've got two different classes trial. And then I assume like permanent ownership. Is it like once you get into permanent ownership, everybody's at the same level? Yeah, that's exactly right. So at full ownership, everyone has the same equity stake in the company. Okay. Now, when you, we still pay ourselves based on an hourly rate, based on our jobs and our positions. On your so seniority. Okay. Exactly. Seniority and the amount of risk you take on, the quality, everything that goes along with that job position, including seniority. Yep. Got it. And so okay. that all very much shows up and is reflected in the sort of the your pay rate, really, and the sort of where you fit into your rate schedule. But the ownership part is egalitarian and okay. shared ownership and shared equity amongst the different tiers. So everyone that's a trial member owns 1%. And everyone that's a full member shares the ownership stake after the Correct. trial members shares our yeah. Yeah, exactly. And your board, is it a mix of internal and external board members? Or is uh, every all internal? It's all, all pool of the full members. So that's one of the one of the rights you get as a full member is the ability to be elected into the board. And we're looking at it like any good democratic process, it's an experiment, it's an ongoing process that needs to respond to changes and whatnot. And so one of the things we're looking at is, oh, is there, what makes sense and what are the, what is there to explore around the opportunity for non, for trial members to have at least some representation on the board, even if it's not a voting right, is there like to have as an ad hoc member, some kind of presence and representation there. That's one of the things that we're looking at right now. I know there's some boards that do that. There are many boards that don't do that at all. And there's pros and cons. And it's part of the part of the ongoing work of responding to our growing. So you actually asked how many of us there are. I believe, I, I'm not the exact right person to ask that question to. I believe there are 19 of us, or there maybe there's about to be 19 of us. On either side of that, we've been as many as 22, and then we shrunk down a bit, and then we're going back up a little bit. And that's split across our design, our construction, and our panel manufacturing, and our administrative teams. And we've got a bunch of different groups that operate within the whole. And so the, the board actually represents a pretty good diversity across those different parts of the company. And that's, again, one of the interesting things around a cooperative is that we have 
the ability for folks in leadership, especially when you have a company that is diverse in terms of who's in the field and who's in the studio and who's in an office and to have some space where there can, yeah, where that egalitarian spirit of everyone having something to value and everyone having some control over their own work that can actually be practiced. And I imagine that in your paperwork, you have defined provisions around if it's not working out with someone. Oh, yes. How that owner can be either voted out or removed or whatever. Exactly. Yep. And it gets very specific. The operating agreement that we have that governs the company gets, we got it as specific and particular as we could possibly foresee. And again, that's another part of evolving nature is we set up every condition we can expect. And then there's always new things that come and we have to respond to that as well. So part of, again, another nice thing about having a board and having the roles and responsibilities and requirements spelled out is that when things happen that we're not sure of, we at least know, oh, it is the body of the full members that actually have the final authority over hiring and firing. Not this one person or not this one. But yes, in terms of how someone's equity is paid out at the end of their tenure, when it's time for them to leave, any of us can be fired. There's no... Oh, I'm on the board and I'm my own boss, so no one can ever fire me. Nope, there's actually accountability to the whole. And if you're performing really poorly and not doing, not showing up, or whether it's me or whether it's someone newer, like we can all be fired for not doing our jobs well and not being productive and responsible members of the team. And then, yeah, and depending on whether you're a trial or a full member, there's different things that happen, largely, again, around that equity. So everyone that is holds a share in the company it's not like it all just gets paid out in cash at the end of every year. That would be a really irresponsible list <laughs> as financial manager. So we do have individual equity accounts within the company. And so it's kept really clear and really explicit and that accounting is really transparent. So that like open book finances and communication around the finances of the company is a huge part of that. We're actually getting ready this afternoon to have one of our quarterly all company meetings. And one of the things we do is look at the company finances and how everything's been going, as well as what the upcoming work is and what our projections are. That's all transparent, as well as, again, what our ownership stakes are and what our equity stakes are for the folks that are in that full body pool, our full membership pool. That's and that's part of the, I would say, both the spirit, but also the like functionality of the co-op is that transparency. Do you have any resources or places that people should look if they're interested in learning more about how to set up a good quality co-op structure? Yeah, absolutely. The U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops is awesome. We've worked with them a lot. They've been super helpful to us in setting up a lot of a lot of our operating agreements, a lot of our situation. One other piece, just to, I'm just going to plug them. We committed to becoming a language, bi a bilingual company all the way through, which include the translation of all of our operating agreements and all of those governance documents. And the U.S. Federation was amazing in helping support that process and, and whatnot. Awesome. So I would say no matter where you're entering in from, they're super useful. If Specifically within the trades, I'd say there's a book that was really useful for us called The Company We Keep. John Abrams, who's a longtime sort of leader in the leader in the field in, in construction, but particularly around cooperative ownership within construction companies. That was a great book. And his company, South Mountain Company, he's since retired, but that company was a living laboratory of those the development of cooperative principles in construction. So we learned a lot from their model as well. But that book is a good resource as well for some, particularly in the construction, looking like, what does this look like? How does this work? What's the organization? Like, what's the theory? What is this whole thing? That's a good read to just get oriented pretty quickly. Great. Okay. Wow, it's 
amazing talking to you because I think the conversation is going to go one way and then all of a sudden <laughs> we pivot. We could do this I all day. We're going to be talking about co-ops, but yeah. that's pretty exciting to me. No, I'm glad. I appreciate your curiosity and willing to follow the conversation in those directions. Again, it's the coolest thing is that all these things really do link in. So yeah, you just absolutely. see all these cool opportunities to do really good work in any of these different spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, every time I talk to you, it's inspiring. So I'm going to have to get you back on the podcast at some yeah, point. Yeah, um, this is great. I think our listeners will will feel the same. How can people connect with you? How can they follow your work? Where do we find you? That's great. Definitely go to Bills for Climate Action and sign up, download Beam, follow their work, our work on that website and, and socials and whatnot, because there's a lot of really cool stuff coming out through there. And then through new frameworks as well. We've got a pretty active Instagram and see what we're doing with the straw panels and that line of work over there too. So see, plug into either of those organizations and you'll find me pretty quick. Great. Jacob, keep up the great work. Thanks, Thanks you too. On. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this podcast and continuing to get, giving a vehicle for getting these ideas out to our industry. It's so critical right now. And I just really appreciate the work you're doing to spread the ideas and help bring our whole industry to a higher level of living. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it again. Awesome.